Well, what a pleasure it is for me to be in Ohio State. I have to say that while uh, Ohio was winning the football game last week and becoming number one in the nation, Stanford was losing his fifth game of the season. <laughs> well, you can't win them all. Uh, it is an honor for me to be here to, to speak the Joe Cruzel lecture. I don't know of any public service more dedicated, more effective than was Joe. We live, truly live, in dangerous times. Last month, about a thousand of our service personnel in Iraq were either killed, maimed, or wounded. The Taliban is resurging in Afghanistan. North Korea has just tested a nuclear bomb, and Iran is not far behind. China's power is rising, and Russia's democracy is falling. I'm going to talk briefly about some of these security challenges. And as a frame of reference, I'm going to describe the security challenges our country faced at the time I became the Secretary of Defense. When I accepted the job as Secretary of Defense, the Cold War had just wound down. I want to start off by reminding you of those heady days, what it was like to people who had lived through the Cold War when all of a sudden it was truly over. I have one short video clip that captured that beautifully, I think. For the first time in 70 years, the Russian national flag was unfurled at the Kremlin. All over the Soviet Union, people tore down the symbols of an ideology that had shaped so much of the 20th century. The people were asked to put their faith in new gods, democracy and capitalism. So that was the setting at the time I became the Secretary of Defense. I knew that the security challenges of the Cold War were behind us, but I did not know what new security challenges we would face. I knew that we had not arrived at the end of history, as suggested by Professor Fukuyama's book at that time. History was waiting to be written. In the hills of Bosnia, in the streets of Haiti, and in the deserts of Iraq. And I realized that peace and stability in this new era would not come easily. We would have to work hard to achieve it. Peace, wrote Elie Wiesel, is not God's gift to his children. Peace is our gift to each other. To keep the peace during the Cold War, each of my predecessors had employed two security strategies, containment and deterring. But by the time I became Secretary of Defense, those strategies were no longer relevant. So my first job as a Secretary was to define the security challenges that we would face. And only then could I determine what new security strategy we needed to evolve. By February 1994, I had defined those challenges. First the nuclear arms race really was over, but I knew that the world still had more than 20,000 nuclear weapons, many in countries facing social and economic collapse. Our challenge was to get those loose nukes under control before a terror group could get a hold of them. Secondly, 
The world had held the line of nuclear proliferation for more than four decades, but now five nations were threatening to go nuclear. India, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, and three more, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, had just become nuclear as a result of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Our challenge was to stop that explosion of proliferation. The third challenge was many small to medium-sized countries were in turmoil and threatened to break out in civil war. It was Bosnia, Serbia, Haiti, Rwanda, Afghanistan. All of those were in dire circumstances. And so our challenge was to strike a proper balance between diplomacy on the one hand and threat of force on the other hand so that we could deal with these problems without having to make the use of military force. Fourth, Russia had abandoned communism and was in political, economic, and social chaos, much as Germany had been in the last days of the Weimar Republic. Our challenge was to help Russia keep from going the way of Germany in 1933 by bringing them into the circle of Western nations. Our fifth challenge came from China. We had to work constructively with China so that they would not become our new enemy and confront us with a new Cold War. And my final challenge was to deal, was deal, maintain the quality and morale of our military so they could deal with any future contingency. That is, we had to keep from breaking the force as it happened at the end of the Vietnam War. Well, those were the challenges that I faced in 1994. So how do they look today? During the period that I was Secretary of Defense, my top priority was to reduce the danger of those loose nukes that were out there. And fortunately, two great senators, Sam Nunn and Dick Lugar, had anticipated this problem and created legislation that allowed the Secretary of Defense to deal with it. Using the Nunn-Lugar program and with the full cooperation of the Soviet Union, now Russia, of course, we were able to dismantle almost 10,000 nuclear weapons and 1,000 launchers in the former Soviet Union and in the United States. I'm going to give you another brief video to capture what we were actually doing then. This particular video is a, is a montage of about six or seven different videos that were taken by Russian and Ukrainian television, Moscow TV and Kiev TV, as I made visits to Russia and Ukraine in the, for the purpose of overseeing the dismantlement of nuclear weapons. I think this will give you a flavor of what was going on at that time. Remember, these are shown to Russian and Ukrainian audiences. They've never been shown in the United States. This is the SS-19 Soviet archive shots. Again, the Soviet archives were testing in the SS-19. This is the missile that we were dismantling. It was my first visit to the missile site called Pergamite, being greeted by the Ukrainian Minister of Defense. We visited the underground control facility. That site controlled 600 nuclear warheads, all aimed at the United States at that time. Now the general is showing me one of the silos. Remember that silo. We will see it again in several different times. My second visit to Kovamites a year later, and now we're standing in front of that same silo where they're moving the missile out to take it away to the scrapyard. Now I'm speaking now with the ending of the Cold audience. War. That dark cloud is drifting away. And we should put the same energy and skills we put to learning how to make war to learn how to make peace. Here's my third visit to Provomysk in which we blow up that silo. The Russian minister... I 
never imagined I'd be met by an honor guard in Kiev playing the Star Spangled Banner. Now we're out at the same site again. That's the Russian Minister of Defense, the American Minister of Defense, and the Ukrainian Minister of Defense all joining forces to blow up the silo you saw in the first picture. There it goes. Now silos are made not to be blown up. So we walked out to the silo afterwards to make sure it really had worked. And we're congratulating ourselves, it really worked. <laughs> and you'll see in a moment. That's the silo you saw in the first picture. We did that to all of the silos at Pilgrimage. Now this is my last visit. Well, yeah. kind of I told the, the couple who lives here about the line from Voltaire's Candide. Я сказав сім'ї, яка тут проживає, про одну з моїх улюблених цитат із роману Кандид, автор Волтер. The most important thing we can do in life is to cultivate our garden and to live in peace. Найважливіше, що ми можемо вчинити в нашому житті, це є піклуватися городом і вирощувати на ньому мир. They are cultivating their garden now and we will live in peace. And now, the three ministers of defense are cultivating their garden for planting sunflowers at that site where you saw the first silo. Now, four months later, at the same site, the sunflowers really did grow. When this effort was concluded in 1996, all of the 2,000 nuclear warheads that had been in Ukraine were gone. Ukraine was a nu to totally nuclear-free state, Kazakhstan was a nuclear-free state, and Belarus was a nuclear-free state. Now let's move <clears throat> fast forward to today. Uh, this effort, unfortunately, has lost much of its intensity. In fact, during the five years after 9-11, there were fewer nuclear weapons dismantled than in the five years before 9-11. I know that the new Secretary of Defense, when he's confirmed, will have Iraq as his first priority, but I will urge him to also give serious attention to the loose nukes problems. The danger of terrorists getting a nuclear bomb is very real, and they will not put their efforts on hold while we are trying to deal with Iraq. Now let me go to the second challenge, proliferation, where we had mixed success. We were successful in reversing the proliferation of nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, as I've just told you. But we were unsuccessful in persuading India and Pakistan not to go nuclear, although that was not from lack of trying. And the unfinished business for my time as Secretary was dealing with the threat that Iraq, Iran, and North Korea would go nuclear. Our Iraqi strategy had been to put Iraq in a box with overflights and on-site inspectors. This strategy did not cause Saddam to give up his nuclear aspirations, but it did keep him from realizing them. The Bush administration was not satisfied with this strategy and decided to resolve the issue by invading Iraq and overthrowing the regime. After American forces occupied Iraq, the team sent in to find the nuclear weapons reported that there was no evidence of a viable nuclear program. The containment strategy had, in fact, worked. In contrast to their aggressive approach to Iraq, the Bush administration took a passive approach to North Korea. North Korea did, in fact, have a viable nuclear weapon program. On taking office, they suspended all discussions with North Korea, much to the dismay of South Korea. In 2002, on the report that North Korea had started a covert program to enrich uranium, the Bush administration suspended 
the agreed framework and refused to enter into any discussions with North Korea. The agreed framework up to that point had caused a freezing of all activities at the nuclear site called Yongbyon. With the suspension of the agreed framework, North Korea then reopened their nuclear facility at Yongbyon and reprocessed the spent fuel that had been there formerly under UN supervision. This gave them enough plutonium to make about six nuclear bombs, the very action that we had feared when I was Secretary of Defense and that the agreed framework had been designed to prevent. At this time, the Chinese became concerned and persuaded all sides to join six-party talks in Beijing designed to resolve the issue. And these talks went on for more than three years with, I guess I can say flatly, no tangible results. In July of this year, North Korea conducted a long-range missile test, and in October, they conducted the test of a nuclear bomb. The bomb tested was a plutonium design and was relatively low, low yield, about one kiloton. All the while, they continued the operation of their nuclear facilities at Yongbyon to produce even more plutonium. I believe that it is fair to conclude that the passive strategy in dealing with North Korea has been a failure, and a failure which endangers all of us. North Korea has agreed to resume the six-party talks next month. The talks are necessary, but not a sufficient condition for success in containing the North Korea nuclear program. We have had, after all, four such meetings over the past three years that produced no restraint at all on the North Korea program. There has been some talk that the U.S. should simply get used to a nuclear North Korea, but I find that difficult to accept. I am not concerned about the prospect of North Korea firing a nuclear ICBM at the United States. They are very far from having that capability, and even if they get it, deterrence would still be effective. We can deter nations, but we cannot deter terror groups. North Korea is not seeking to commit suicide, but I'm deeply concerned that a robust North Korea nuclear program will stimulate a dangerous arms race in the Pacific and increase the danger of Iran becoming a nuclear power. Above all, I fear that a nuclear North Korea increases the danger of a terror group getting a nuclear bomb. In the meantime, Iran is operating a number of nuclear facilities and is getting closer to having a nuclear weapon. They have had for some years at Bushir a reactor provided by the Russians that could be used to make plutonium, much as the North Koreans have done. Russia is trying to work with Iran to persuade them to send their spent fuel to Russia for reprocessing so that they cannot use the plutonium to make nuclear bombs. But that issue is far from resolved. Iran is also building a facility to enrich uranium, which is an alternative route to a nuclear bomb. This program, which is concealed for years from UN inspectors, was very slow in getting off the ground until the Iranians got a significant assistance from A.Q. Khan, the head of the Pakistani nuclear program. The European Union is negotiating with Iran to try to get them to forswear enriching their uranium, but these talks seem to be going nowhere. The United States is clearly a very interested party in these negotiations, but has declined to be an active participant in them. So my forecast is that with the present weak negotiating strategies, Iran will move inexorably towards becoming a nuclear power. In case we did not understand Iran's interest in nuclear weapons, the Iranian president clarified them for us by stating that Israel should be wiped from the face of the earth. Some believe that the Iranian president is all bark and no bite, but the Israeli government is not so sanguine. Indeed, one of the ways this nuclear crisis could come to a head could be a preemptive strike on the Iranian nuclear facilities by Israel. Even if the intended consequence of such a strike were to be successful, it is impossible to overstate the dangers attendant to the unintended consequence. My third challenge as Secretary of Defense was preventing regional conflicts or dealing with them if necessary. We were able to overthrow the military dictatorship in Haiti without war by an adroit use of coercive diplomacy in which President, former President Jimmy Carter 
General Colin Powell and Senator Sam Nunn all played a crucial role. As a result, our troops entered Haiti not as invaders, but as friends. And importantly, after a year of false starts, we were able to stop the killing in Bosnia by using diplomacy to get the peace and then deploying a strong military force to enforce the peace. There were three people in the United States who played a key role in bringing about the peace agreement in Bosnia that finally stopped the slaughter in that unhappy country. Dick Holbrook, whose book, To End the War, tells the inspiring yet daunting tale of how that peace was achieved. General Wes Clark, who was my military representative, and Joe Krusel, who was my civilian representative, on that mission of peace. Let me show you a picture where I was discussing with Joe how we would, how we would proceed forward in this program. This Holbrook mission was completely successful, but at a terrible price, as Joe and two of his colleagues from the State Department lost their lives in the mountains of Bosnia. But as a result of their efforts, we did reach a peace accord that established NATO to enforce the peace. NATO and Partnership for Peace Nations <clears throat> provided a powerful and well-trained military force <clears throat> of 55,000 troops that quickly installed security and stability in that war-ravaged country. The United States supplied 25,000 of these troops, and although these troops operated in a very dangerous war zone, they suffered almost no casualties. And we achieved a historic first. We persuaded Russia to join NATO in this operation. Well, the Bush, now let's go up to date. The Bush administration has focused on regional countries they consider to be threats to the United States. They overthrew the dangerous Taliban regime in Afghanistan, which was a success, and invaded Iraq, which has run into a host of problems. The decision to invade Iraq was based on three judgments of the administration, <clears throat> that the imminent danger of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which turned out to be not true, the support of the Iraqi government for terror groups like, like al-Qaeda, which turned out to be not true, and the belief that a democratic regime in Iraq would significantly improve security and stability in the entire Mideast region. It is certainly true that if we could have created a democratic regime in Iraq, that it would have had a positive effect on other countries in the Mideast. But that turned out to be far more difficult than the administration had understood. And the result is a bloody insurgency that is turning into a civil war. It should have been clear from the beginning that attempting to impose a democratic regime on a country like Iraq was a hugely difficult undertaking, if it could be achieved at all. But the Secretary of Defense insisted that the invasion be carried out with far fewer American troops than the Army thought necessary and with only minimal support from other nations. And his deputy in Iraq decided to disband the Iraqi security forces after the Iraqi government collapsed. Thus, when the insurgency started, there were not enough troops in place to keep it from gaining a foothold. Belatedly, we, re we began recruiting and training Iraqis to augment the understaffed American forces there, but it could prove to be too late. I am a member of a bipartisan commission, the Baker-Hamilton Commission, that is commissioned to chart a way forward in Iraq. We've been meeting for the last six months, struggling to find actions we could recommend that had a reasonable chance of getting us out of the very deep hole we are in in Iraq. Next month, we will be reporting our findings to the President, to the Congress, and to the American people. And that is about all I can say at this time, except to say you should not expect any silver bullet. Our fourth challenge was dealing constructively with the unsettled state of Russia and other Eastern European nations to avoid a repetition of the disasters that followed the Weimar Republic. In order to bring Russia closer to Western nations, we made Russia an associate member of NATO, and we created the Partnership for Peace to bring Russia, as well as other Eastern European nations, into the Western security circle. The Partnership for Peace allowed us to realize the benefits of the ending of the Cold War while avoiding the disasters that could have followed 
if we had not held out a hand of peace and friendship to the nations that had been in the former Warsaw Pact. The architect of the Partnership for Peace, of course, was Joe Kuzel. And Partnership for Peace is a legacy which his, in which his family can take enormous pride. This is the key meeting at NATO where we agreed to establish the Partnership for Peace. And this is one of the products of the Partnership for Peace, a peacekeeping exercises. They were conducted all over, the, all over Europe and the United States. This particular one was in the United States. And if I show you this picture so you can see all the flags that are flying there. There's a mixture of flags from NATO nations and Warsaw Pact nations. All these soldiers are marching together in formation, all dedicated to one ac action, which is peacekeeping in Europe. The trial period for Eastern European nations and the Partnership for Peace turned out to be successful. And many of, the Europe, many of the Partnership for Peace nations subsequently have become members of NATO. And most importantly, it became the basis for persuading Russia to send a brigade of troops to Bosnia to work under the command of an American general. At the time, many people thought this was mission impossible. In fact, it was not easy and required me to have four meetings with the Russian Minister of Defense in Washington, in Whiteman Air Force Base, in Fort Riley, and finally at NATO headquarters in Brussels. But when the NATO nations sent their brigades to Bosnia in 1996, Russia was right there with them with a high-quality brigade under the command of General Bill Nash, commander of the U.S. First Armored Division. The high watermark of U.S.-Russian relations was marked by this unprecedented military cooperation in Bosnia and by the cooperation of Russia in dismantling nuclear weapons under the Nanlugar program. Since then, our relations have deteriorated, and more importantly, Russia's democratic institutions are coming under assault. The opposition parties in Russia are increasingly marginalized. The media is increasingly under the control of the government. Russians who deal with foreigners are in danger of being charged with passing state secrets. Foreign non-governmental organizations are under tight control of the government, especially if they provide a forum for governmental criticism. In short, democracy is fading in Russia. The Russian people have effectively been asked to trade their freedom for economic well-being and stability, and they seem to have accepted that trade. The future of democracy in Russia will probably be determined by the next presidential election when we see whether Putin surrenders power or whether he arranges to have the presidency turned over to a surrogate. I would like to leave ample time for questions. So I will defer to the question period discussions about the fifth challenge, China, and make very brief comments about the sixth challenge, which is military readiness. When I became the Secretary of Defense, I inherited a super military force and worked hard to ensure that my successor would inherit that same capability. Indeed, at the time I left office, the U.S. military was the dominant military force in the world and enjoyed superb morale. Today, it is still the dominant military force, but our ground forces are undergoing severe strain. We will get through Iraq, for better or worse, but the Army and the Marines will be left with a monumental rebuilding and re-equipping task in order to get ready for future contingencies. And there is reason to doubt that the public and the Congress will have the stamina to support the effort needed to reconstitute our ground forces. A more serious problem is the Army National Guard and Reserves, which has been devastated by the continuing deployments in Iraq. The Army National Guard may very well be broken already and have to be reconstituted nearly from scratch. And as we proceed to reconstitute the Army Guard, we should take the opportunity to give it a major focus on the homeland defense problem rather than reconstituting it as an expeditionary force, which it has been since the end of the Cold War. One positive note on the problems faced today by our reserve forces is the role of OMK, our military kids, which is co-founded by Joe Kuzel's wife, Gail, who is with us today. Our military kids has taken on the task of supporting the kids of reservists who are deployed overseas and whose family has no support base, as you would find with the families on active duty personnel 
whose families live on or near a military base. They are truly doing the, <coughs> excuse me, they are truly doing the work of the Lord, and we all owe a debt of gratitude to Gail and her team at ONK. In sum, I think you can see why I do not believe that we have reached the end of history. We are facing new dangers, and we must adjust our thinking accordingly. And in that spirit, I will leave you with one of my favorite quotes from Abraham Lincoln. The occasion is piled high with difficulty, he wrote, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. I thank you. The mayor said he was anxious to get into questions when we talked beforehand, so we've left, we've left ample time. I think I'll let the meeting handle pick people. Sure, please. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask about uh, North Korea. Um, how high a priority do you put on that? And are you willing to use military force to stop North Korea from developing nuclear weapons capacity which can't be done by other means? I put a very high priority on it. Not quite as high a priority as I put on Iran. Although the difference between North Korea and Iran is that I think the danger of Iranian nuclear weapons getting in the hands of terrorists is higher than in North Korea. But on the other hand, North Korea is there. They have the nuclear weapons, whereas Iran is a few years away. So that's the balance between the two. But those are the two, I think, major threats today of nuclear weapons getting in the hands of terrorists. I want to emphasize again, the issue is not that North Korea or Iran are going to fire missiles out of nuclear weapons at it. Deterrence does work. And not, neither of those nations are seeking to commit suicide. The danger is that the weapons will somehow get out of their hands and into the hands of terrorists, or if not the weapons, the plutonium. So that's what we need to be concerned about. Uh, so I put a very high priority on it. When I was the secretary, we faced the same problem with North Korea in 1994. We almost went to war over it. Uh, I was literally sitting in the cabinet room with the national security, president of the national security staff, recommending that we put another 20 or 30,000 troops in, in South Korea in anticipation of the problem. When the call came through from Kim Il-sung saying he was ready to negotiate, stopping and freezing the program. I also had at that time on my desk a proposal to take out the nuclear facility at Yongbyon with, with cruise missiles. It's something we could have done. It's something that we put very, very far in the back of the table while we pursued negotiations and diplomacy first. So I guess the military, op a military alternative is always available. It should be the last alternative, but to, to make that meaningful, you have to really work hard at the, dip at, the dip at the diplomatic end of it. I do believe that North Koreans' judgment that we might attack that facility was a factor in coming to their agreeing to come to the diplomatic table. So it wasn't just diplomacy, it was probably the coercive diplomacy that was successful in the end. Yes? Good question. <coughs> One is this uh, very curious statement that uh, Don Rumsfeld made that he wasn't consulted about the decision to invade Iraq. And then the other one is, is more about the very successful policy you had about the no-fly zone. That, that why would the policy they had us over the horizon with an awful lot like your no-fly zone kind of policy and, and have the same kind of successful outcome? Well, we didn't focus on details. He said, keep your missing situation over there. <coughs> I have not heard uh, the Rumsfeld quote that he was not consulted about Iraq. I would have a hard time believing that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I didn't hear the quote, so I'm not in a position to uh, comment on that. Uh, the at, at the time, we believed that the strategy of keeping Iraq in a box was working relative to nuclear weapons. The other side of the argument, which was made by the people who said we ought to be invading, was that we couldn't do that forever, that uh, we would lose 
we would not continue to get UN support for it, that the Saddam would find ways of evading it. All of these arguments made that it could not continue working. Um, those had to be taken seriously, but when you weigh that with the cost of the invasion, I think a prudent judgment would have been we should have continued that containment strategy rather than trying to solve the problem by invading the country. I'd have to believe that there were strong factors in the administration's mind beyond the weapons of mass destruction, namely their view that if they could overthrow Saddam and create a democratic government in Iraq, that it would help solve problems all through the Mideast region. And as I said in my talk, I think that is a, a credible point of view if, if you really thought you could pull that off. What they under, hugely underestimated, though, was the difficulty, not of defeating the Iraqi army, which is something which was relatively easy to do, but of instilling a democratic regime in the country and maintaining security and stability. We are very far from that today, and it is nowhere in sight as I would see it right now. Yes? Um, regardless of the uh, U.S. administration's change uh, from the Clinton's regime, uh, I think the, the, the reason why Clinton signed the Freedmen's uh, Agreement with North Korea was the anticipation that North Korea regime would collapse. That was one kind of interpretation. And, uh, and the United States never really implemented the, or unable to because the Republicans were Congress. So to what extent the Bill Clinton's government record on the North Korean uh, nuclear issue was, was for success relative to today's yeah. North Korean policy? After I left office as Secretary of Defense, and I was back at Stanford, we had a, another crisis with North Korea over their firing of a missile over Japan. And I was called back temporarily in the government service to be an envoy of the president to deal with North Korea in that problem. And I spent, first of all, the first four or five months of that effort bringing South Korea and Japan with me because I believed we could not deal adequately with North Korea unless we had a united position among the three allies here. Once that was done, I then went to North Korea, to Pyongyang, to meet with the North Korean and presented them with two alternatives. <clears throat> the first alternative was give up their nuclear weapons and missiles in a verifiable way. And if they did that, well, all sorts of good things could happen. The uh, United States would establish relations with them. The United States would sign a non-aggression pact with them. Uh, South Korea and Japan would open economic ties with them. Japan would pay war reparations. Uh, <clears throat> in short, we laid out a, a, a path by which North Korea could become a, a normal nation and have a reasonably prosperous economy. The other path, which says if they do not do that, and we said we would take necessary steps to stop them uh, without specifying what those were. I thought we were very close to an agreement with North Korea along those lines, uh, but we are literally within, I think, months of having that agreement signed when the administration turned over. Now, when the Bush administration came in, Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State, said he was going to continue that policy and consummate that agreement. But he was overruled by the president, and so that never happened. So we'll never know what might have happened there. But as a part of that study, to get specifically to one question you raised, as a part of that study, we looked very hard at whether North Korea could or would be overthrown. And our conclusion was that the secret police were so strong in that country and the control of information was so total in that country that it was very unlikely to happen. So one of the main conclusions of my report to the president on this was we must deal with North Korea as it is and not as we would wish it to be. In other words, I would argue we had to deal with them and negotiate with them. Uh, the Bush administration, almost from the beginning, has rejected that and said we will find a strategy for overthrowing this regime. The only way to deal with an evil regime like that is find a way of overthrowing it. I am wholly sympathetic with the idea of overthrowing the North Korea regime if we could do it. I said, we don't have, they don't have a way of doing it. And so it is a, it's not that it's a bad policy, it's a feckless policy. There's no way of carrying it out. And the consequence of believing that it could be carried out then has been what we now see, which is North Korea proceeds forward with the nuclear program. They now have probably eight nuclear bombs. They have at least 100 medium-range missiles pointed at South Korea and Japan, and they're developing longer-range ICBMs. So this is a very dangerous situation. The most dangerous situation in North Korea today, though, 
is that besides the facilities they have, which got them to where they are today, they have a large reactor under construction there, which if they finish, would give them enough capacity to build another 10 bombs a year. And that would, in a very few years, that would make them really a significant nuclear power. So I think it's a very dangerous situation, and I think the, the idea that the re regime is going to collapse, or there's some kind of economic or political pressure we could put on them to make them collapse, is a fantasy. And, and it's that, that hope has kept us from a more effective policy, which we should have been pursuing right along with North Korea. I'm highly critical, you may get it, highly critical of the administration's policy and approach towards North Korea. And even if I, and you can argue about theoretically whether it was the right idea or the wrong idea, but you cannot argue about the results. The results are they're going from zero nuclear weapons to eight nuclear weapons, just like that. It's a very dangerous situation. Yes? I want to encourage the students. Here. Yes, by all means. This is a great opportunity for you. The criminal lecturers have voted for students. So don't let the faculty just keep dominating their questions. And I encourage the secretary to see any young hands go up. Why don't you field the questions for no, me? Jerry, the, okay. I mean, I can withdraw my question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want um, to the students after you, though. Right. Um, it's pretty obvious that you're critical. Not in every respect, but no. North Korea, yes. Yeah. With respect to North Korea yeah. and Iran yes. uh, as well. And so um, looking at those two uh, cases, obviously we have two more years left of that administration. Do you see any hope that the policy could change in much more constructive ways, or, or are we stuck with it? Or could uh, maybe uh, the new U.S. Congress somehow be able to exert influence in this policy? <laughs> I, I am fundamentally an optimist, and yes, I do continue to hope and believe that there will be changes in the policy. Uh, the Congress cannot, as you well know, execute uh, security policy. They can, what's really more important is that the American people have spoken, and I think the administration has to pay significant attention to that. I do expect to see changes in our policy in Iraq, and hopefully changes in our policy in North Korea. Um, I have devoted a lot of my time the last six or seven months to working with this Iraq study group. And I almost turned it down because, because of the question you asked. I thought, even if we come up with good recommendations, it's not likely the administration will want to act on them. I, think, I don't think that now. I think if we can come up with sensible, positive recommendations, I think the administration will take them seriously and possibly will act on them. So I'm, a little, I'm more optimistic on that today than I was a few months ago. Uh, on North Korea, I see some hopes there also. That is, I'm not. We do we do have the six, another round of six-party talks going next month. Uh, I pointed out the last four have yielded nothing, but then we went in the last four without much of, without much of an intent to negotiate. I'm thinking, I'm believing that we're going in now with some reason, with some real incentives to negotiate, and we might come up with something quite positive with the North Korean system. So I hold out, you know, not a 50-50 chance, but some hope in each case that there will be changes of policy within the next few months. We will have to wait for two years for a change. And Iran? Iran? Yeah, Iran. One of the things that our Iraq study group looked at very carefully was how could we get Syria and Iran to play a more constructive role in Iraq. And we will be making recommendations on those points. Those, will, I think, will be hardest for the administration to accept, but we'll be making them anyway. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you said that uh, neither North Korea or Iran is tied. By what mechanism are you imagining that if their weapons get into the hands of terrorists, um, what, what mechanism will their weapons become Let me say very clearly, first of all, I do not think that's a probability. I'm not holding that that something's likely to happen. It may only be a 5 or 10% chance of it happening, but a 5 or 10% 10, 5 10 chance of a, of a huge disaster. I mean, a nuclear bomb going off in one of our cities, we're talking about 100,000 people killed. Now, uh, the question you asked specifically, though, was how would it happen? I think in North Korea, the, the way it would happen is, is fairly straightforward, which is they have, for years, for decades, um, been involved in contraband smuggling of illicit goods. 
They've been selling missiles to other countries and missile technology. They've been selling some of the nuclear technology to, uh, they were trying to sell some of it to Libya when they, when they, were, when they were caught. Uh, what I would most be, be concerned about is not that they would sell a bomb, but they might sell some plutonium. And uh, this much plutonium can make a nuclear bomb. And so any effort to try to prevent them from smuggling that out would be a very low probability. So if they decide to do that, uh, or why would they do it? It's because they're, they're in desperate economic conditions. And our strategy with North Korea, which is squeezing them economically, you see, just puts them in an even more desperate position economically. So it is increasing the probability that they might do something desperate like selling some of the plutonium for tens of millions of dollars. As it stands right now, their illicit sale of that sort are about the only sources of hard currency that North Korea has. This is a country that's in desperate economic condition. So that would be my concern in North Korea. In Iran, it would be a different matter altogether. They're not they're very, they're very prosperous economically because of uh, $70 oil. So the condition of Iran would, would be that uh, they have long supported terror groups. They're the direct and most important support of Hezbollah, for example, groups that are dedicated to uh, conducting terror operations. Uh, my concern there is that, in a, is that uh, they might actually make the huge mistake of, of, of uh, supplying one of, the, one of these terror groups with a nuclear weapon. I, again, I do not think it's likely, but I think it, it is possible. It's what to be concerned about. Um, there are statements about Israel in particular, I think, have to give you a real, real pause. And imagine that if they supplied a nuclear bomb to Hezbollah with the idea of setting it up in Israel. This is, not an, this is not an impossible scenario. It's not a likely scenario, but it's not an impossible. I think it's one to be concerned about. So given those concerns, I think our best effort is to try to stop these, stop the, the, these two countries from being nuclear in the first place. But that, I have to tell you, that is a losing battle right now. I can't give you much optimism that we're going to be successful. Yes? What do you think China's position on North Korea should be? What, do you, what kind of influence would you like them to have over North Korea? China has more influence on North Korea probably than any other country, or positive influence. Not because they are such good friends, which is not true. They really dislike each other quite a bit. Uh, it's because China supplies, China does not want the regime to collapse for reasons of their own, and they supply most of the food and fuel oil, which has kept the country from going on the ropes in the last five or ten years. So the reason they have a lot of influence is they could simply threaten to stop, cut off that supply of fuel oil and, uh, and grain. And they've done that once or twice over the short term to force North Korea into actions they want them to take, for example, to get them to go actually attend the six-party talks. That was, that was done by China's pressure on North Korea. The only kind of pressure the United States can apply to North Korea. Since we're not giving them anything, we don't have anything to withhold. So all we can do is threaten military action, which is a, uh, which has so many downsides to it, it's almost not worth discussing. But uh, So China, in dealing with in diplomatically, uh, the cliches are you need carrots and sticks. Well, the, <coughs> the carrots can come, the incentives, positive incentives, can come from South Korea and Japan. And they're quite willing to provide those positive incentives. They make a big difference in North Korea. The negative incentives, the so-called sticks, uh, the only are two, two that I can identify, the, the U.S. military, which I think we do not want to use, and China withholding the supply of the grain and food. So if you want to put together a viable negotiating strategy with North Korea, you have to have Japan and South Korea agreeing to provide the positive incentives and China agreeing to provide the negative incentives. That would be the strategy. And if I were running the six-party talks, that's where I would try to organize them. We have not done that. Uh, we've not done it because, as I said, we've under, we're, we're, our administration stuck with the belief that, that, the, that the strategy ought to be to overthrow the regime. And overthrowing the regime leads is something that China will not agree to, and therefore we cannot get them to act in concert with us. China does not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. It's a problem for them as well as a problem for us. So we ought to be able to arrive at a, at a common negotiating strategy, but we have not for the reason I've described. Yes? 
another China question for you. Um, you know, China has, I think, in the last 20 years, more and more asserted their role in the region, and it, you know, they seem to be making moves towards asserting a role, more active role in the Middle East as well. Do you think is China truly? Do you think a rising superpower? Do you think they're going to be able to conquer the internal problems they have and you know their relationship with Russia and really begin to challenge us for influence in these regions? Where do you, where do you see them going? Uh, China is a rising power and will become in time a superpower. I think. And our policy ought to be based on that presumption and based on the view that we want, as China rises, we want to develop a constructive relation with them, not an adversarial relationship. Now, having said that, the other part of your question was, uh, are they going to continue that rise? I do not believe so. I, th I think the, uh, I think they're, they're going to hit a speed bump sometime in the next few years, which is going to throw them off course badly. And the speed bump could be, I mean, you don't go 9% a year forever. Something happens. <laughs> it's going to go down. It's going to it's level off, or it's going to put more likely going to go back down again. And when that happens, there's going to be economic and so catastrophe in China, which could turn into a social catastrophe. What keeps this government in power in China today is the fact they keep delivering the goods. Each year, the quality of living gets a little better for most Chinese. And that's, that's what gives them their legitimacy. They do not have an ideology anymore that holds them in power. So that's what they are selling, really. And the, the two big problems they face, and of course, the Chinese government is, is painfully aware of this. First of all, they could hit the speed bump, something those are economy, of course. But secondly, even if, the, even, even if it continues, the benefits to China are being distributed very unevenly to the Chinese people. People along the coast are getting all the benefits, the people inland are not. That would not be so bad, except the people inland now have access to television. They see what's happening in Shanghai and Beijing, and they say, I want that too. And if you visit Shanghai or Beijing, you'll see the cities are flooded with people coming in from the country. Chinese government's trying to hold this back, but it's very difficult. So they have a huge uh, social problem in their hand, which could become a political problem. And it will be greatly aggravated, greatly accelerated if there's an economic collapse. And every country sooner or later hits some kind of an economic collapse. Most countries can, can ride it out, but China is in danger of not being able to ride it out because of the facts I've described to you. Yes? Um, although the United States has taken a pretty, pretty hard line on seems, at least to me, that it, it, it hasn't been as hard as some of the things we saw before the lead-up to the war in Iraq. Do you think that situation has kind of sobered our take on uh, how effective a military strategy might be in, in looking at those other two nations? Yes, I do. I mean, I know nearly everybody, <coughs> nearly everybody in this administration, known them for years, they're smart people. Uh, I don't agree with the policies they've been pursuing, but I, I do not question intelligence at all. They, and they look at what's happening in Iraq. They have, they have to be reevaluating their calculus as to the efficacy of U.S. military power being used to impose our will on other countries. That's a, uh, so I think they're backing off that. Now, having said that, I, w I will also tell you that many of the people who are arguing most strongly that we go into Iraq are arguing now that we attack Iran. Some of the same people. So not everybody, not everybody learns that lesson. Uh, I do not think those people have the ear of the administration at all, though. That's the good news in this. But they are there, and, and, and they're still writing their articles and still making their speeches and saying that Iraq is the next target. I mean, Iran is the next target. Now, I am very concerned about Iran, but I do not think we have a viable military strategy with Iran. Yes? The only way we can deal with these problems is through the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, I think. But it has failed with both North Korea and Iran. 
has failed for two reasons. And if you understand why it has failed, then we maybe can find the ways of fixing it. So, so, so it's failed, first of all, because when the Non-Proliferation Treaty was uh, established, it uh, basically set a compact between the nuclear powers and the non-nuclear powers. The non-nuclear powers were offered nuclear technology if they did not use them to make nuclear weapons. But they had to agree to stay non-nuclear. The nuclear powers had a responsibility also. Their responsibility would start moving the nuclear weapons down significantly, heading towards zero. We kept that part of the bargain up to about 2000. We've not been keeping it since then. Uh, and that's part of the problem. People look at us and say, you're being hypocritical on that. I don't want to extend that too far. I do not think that was the reason the North Korean Iran are pursuing nuclear weapons. They have their own reasons for pursuing them. But that does undermine the legitimacy of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in the eyes of other nations who might consider going nuclear that we're not even talking about today in, in Brazil and Argentina. And, I mean, I could list about half a dozen other nations that could go nuclear just like that if they decided to. So that's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that the, when the NPT was established, we didn't fully envision how a country could go right up to the point of being a nuclear weapon, hold it at that point, and then whenever they decided to go nuclear weapons, drop out of the NPT and go nuclear. That's what North Korea did. They used the, they used the facilities of the, of the non-proliferation treaty, the advantages come to them, to go right up to the point of having nuclear weapons. Then they dropped out of the nuclear proliferation treaty, made the plutonium, and made the bombs. So we need to have a tighter constraint within the nuclear non-proliferation treaty to stop that. And I've written op-ed pieces on that. Other people have as well. What could be done? Most importantly, the director of the IAEA, Baradai, has come up with a proposal which basically says that the non-nuclear nations can have all nuclear facilities they want, except they will not have control of the fuel, fuel cycle. That's been the proposal. If that could be accepted, if that could be uh, added to the non-proliferation treaty, then it would be an effective vehicle for stopping proliferation. But as, as it stands right now, everybody in the world sees the formula, the pattern laid out by North Korea and, and likely to be followed by Iran which is you stay in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty until you're ready, and then you withdraw and build your bomb. Yes? Um, I hear your concern with the possibility of nuclear proliferation out of Iran and North Korea, but it also strikes me at the same time that the actual proliferation that's gone on has been largely because of Pakistan, yet we don't hear about the sanctions, we don't hear about the force, we don't hear about anything with respect to Pakistan. If I had been giving a whole talk on proliferation, I would have shown you a chart which says, here are my primary concerns for proliferation. Number one, Pakistan. Number two, Iran. Number three, North Korea. Uh, the, that is, we're not concerned. We, we don't, we don't uh, wring our hands about England having nuclear, the United Kingdom having nuclear weapons because we don't think they're going to do anything with them. We worry about those three countries because we fear that the probability, maybe it's only 5 or 10%, is that bombs will slip out of their hands into the hands of a terrorist. So those three countries are, are the, the ones of greatest concern to us. But on the list, I would put Pakistan number one. Uh, we are not doing anything about Pakistan's nuclear weapons because we believe <coughs> we need their help in dealing with uh, more conventional terrorism, particularly the terror in, in uh, trying to control. I haven't talked about Afghanistan today. I said Afghanistan was a success. It was a success up to a point. But now in the last year, Taliban is resurging in Afghanistan. And they're being fed supplies and people from Pakistan. So Pakistan is a key to trying to deal with that problem, and we're trying to work with the Pakistani government in order to facilitate that. Uh, the question... I don't want to be critical of, our, of the administration here because I th understand they've got a very difficult problem and I don't have a better way of dealing with it than what they're trying to do. Their, their approach is that they're not 
satisfied with everything what Sharp is doing, but they feel if they press him any harder, they may push him right out of office. And the person who succeeds Musharraf is going to be worse than Musharraf. That's their view of the problem, and I'm not, I don't have the wisdom to contradict that view. They may be right or they may be wrong, but it's a plausible line of argument in my mind. I do not see a good solution to the, to the uh, Pakistani problem today. Yes? Um, I think the odds are better than 50-50 right now of a real breakout in nuclear proliferation. Um, and the key are North Korea and Iran. If North Korea cannot be rolled back, first of all, not, you, there's going to be no way of keeping Iran from going nuclear. And if North Korea and, and Iran both proceeding full range nuclear weapons, I do not see what stops Japan from going nuclear at that point. Japan could decide if they ever decided to go nuclear, they already have a, several tons of plutonium all there. All they have to do is, in a matter of a few months, um, build weapons out of them. Uh, and South Korea is going to have the same concern. Taiwan might get into the act. And all this is going to cause a reaction on China's part, especially the Japanese and Taiwanese going nuclear, will cause a huge reaction on the part of China. In the, in the Mideast region, uh, Iran going nuclear is going to stimulate one of the Sunni countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia and decide they have to go nuclear too. They can't have a Shia nuclear bomb without a Sunni nuclear bomb. So it, and on top of all that, the several South American countries are reconsidering going nuclear now. So we are, I think, at the most dangerous period right now in the whole history of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Right today, the most dangerous period of tipping and uh, just going unrestrained nuclear weapons. And if I had to guess, guess right now, I'd say it's a 50-50 shot that there's going to be, in the next five years or so, we're going to see a whole host of nations go nuclear. Everything hinges on getting North Korea and Iran stopped, and there's very little evidence that, that's, that what we're doing is working there. Time only for a couple more questions. I'm going to make sure some women get a chance. <laughs> Representing our gender. Yeah. Um, in the context of talking about solutions to the problem, we talked about That's a wonderful question. I'm glad you asked that. If you look at the six challenges I laid out, five of those six challenges we cannot do by ourselves. We cannot meet by ourselves. We certainly cannot meet the proliferation by ourselves. Uh, we can't, cannot deal with the loose nukes problem by ourselves. We cannot deal with terrorism by ourselves. All of these require uh, substantial international cooperation. Uh, after 9-11, as you pointed out, we had this outpouring of support from around the world. And basically, we have squandered that. And the regard for the United States and the world today is at an all-time low. And this isn't just about making you uncomfortable when you're traveling abroad. It does affect our ability to achieve our security goals. So I think this is a terrible problem. One of the things we will do, I can say with some confidence, in the Iraq study group report we write, is urge that we get back on a track to recognize that, we, that the solution to most of our problems are multilateral, we have to start work to, to build up the regard of other nations. Now, the only way you deal effectively with other nations is by taking some, listening to what they say about what's important and taking some account of that when you act. It's not just a matter of being polite to them. It's taking their views into account and trying to change your policies to try to accommodate those views. I gave you a very brief talk about how, uh, a comment in my talk, about how we got Russia to send a brigade of their troops to be under the American general in Bosnia. And I said I had to make four different visits, meetings with the Russian defense minister to get that. The whole purpose of those visits was to find out what was he thinking. Why, what did, why did he not want to send his brigade there? And what could cause him to change his mind? 
on that. And after listening to that, I finally figured out what was important to him, and we were able to accommodate our plans to accommodate his. But you have to listen to other countries and take them seriously and try to act on their interests. When I went over to Pyongyang to deal with North Korea, I told you I spent five months dealing with South Korea and Japan first because I realized I could not have a successful deal with North Korea if South Korea were not 100% on board. One of our problems today is the six-party talks, is the United States and South Korea have totally different views about what the threat is and what should be done about it. So South, North Korea, of course, sees that, and they're expert at driving wedges between our countries. So nothing, nothing could be more important. And I, that's a perfect way to probably to end the talk today with that, that question. Thank you very much. It was great talk. <laughs> Well, I want to thank uh, Secretary Perry very much. It's been a terrific Cruiser Lecture. Gail, welcome home. <laughs> and thank you all for coming.